Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Happy Hour History. I'm your host, Professor Natalie Harpin. Today I wanted to talk a little bit about somebody who is a educational hero of mine, and I'll explain why. So her name is Jane Elliott, and I was thinking about doing a podcast about her a little bit and talking about like what she does that I admire and how it relates to the work that I do. So I thought that this was the perfect opportunity to do that because she'll be turning 90 this year, even though her birthday is at the end of November. It's the last day of November. So Jane Elliott is somebody who is, I believe, credited as a diversity educator or a like a activist educator. I'm not exactly sure. Um, but I became aware of Jane Elliott because I saw one of her experiments on television. And then later on the clips made their way to YouTube. So she is somebody who got her start, um, as a school teacher in Iowa and she became famous because she created the blue eyes, brown eyes exercise with her third grade class. And she did it the day after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in 1968. And her reason for doing this was because she wanted to show her students like the power that, you know, segregation and prejudice has in our society. But this was an area that was fully white. So these were kids who were all white. Jane Elliott herself is a white woman. So she couldn't, you know, do like a diverse pool in the way we would think of it as far as like cultures, religions, or race. But she did do it by eye color. So what she did was see she essentially said that the children who had brown eyes were inferior to the children who had blue eyes because her class was pretty divided. Like some of them had blue eyes, some of them had brown eyes. And in that experiment, she was talking about how she saw the self-confidence of her third graders fall after just that one day. And so I'm not like advocating for, you know, obviously like, (laughs) like ruining the psyches of children here. But the point of the exercise was that she was seeing and making it very real to them that yes, this civil rights leader was assassinated And yes, he was a black man and like you all are not black and in dominant society, you will not be discriminated against in nearly the same way that non-white people are, but that those same principles can be applied to arbitrary things that you have no control over, like your eye color. So she was detailing about how the students with brown eyes weren't allowed to like eat with everybody else. They weren't allowed to play with everybody else. And again, she just made up these rules in class that day. And she also talks about how some of the students who had blue eyes like really leaned into that role of now having superiority over people who were their friends and classmates who in their eyes they saw, did not see as different at all. Like just just that quick, right? Now that she's told this one group, you're now superior to this other group. And she saw how some of even the children with the blue eyes did also suffer as a result of this newfound superiority because it affected how they were able to interact with people who they were friends with who had brown eyes. And so the experiment has been done also with adults. And I think I've, I think all of the I want to say they've all been done in the United States, but I'm not 100% sure, so I won't certify that. But 
Jane Elliott has become famous also as, you know, as an older woman and educator because she's done this same experiment in much more racially and ethnically diverse groups of people. So the exercise I saw, I don't remember where it was, but she had these people show up to a warehouse and it really started at the very, very beginning. And I think the thing that really, really makes me respect Jane Elliott as an educator is that she begins from the beginning and she doesn't let these people, you know, especially the ones who are now going to be considered inferior in any given exercise that she decides how she's going to divide people. She doesn't let them fall on the cultural cues that they've been told can get them out of personal responsibility or make people feel sympathetic for them. And if you ever watch any of her work on YouTube, you could just type in Jane Elliott and it's Elliott with two T's. You'll see the videos that I'm talking about and I would audio play them, but I'm not exactly sure if I can do that because of copyright reasons. I think you can as long as it's audio and not video. So one of the things is, is that in one of the, I mean, and I guess it would help if you could see the visuals especially, but so I won't worry about linking that. But the point is, is that, you know, these are adults that she's doing it with. And from the very beginning, she is ascribing where someone's new role is in this new group. So I saw an exercise where she did something. I don't know. If, I don't think she did it with eye color. I think she did it by race. So all of the white people who came into the room, like people who were phenotypically white, they were now a part of the inferior group. And again, Jane Elliott's a white person herself, but she's the facilitator of the exercise. And from the very beginning, I know I keep saying that, but those of us who are non-white, and even I would say for people who are white, but have been considered an undesirable in any given moment for whatever reason, you understand what I'm talking about. She doesn't even address them properly. And many of us know what it's like to be in a place where someone is supposed to be, you know, cordial or courteous to you, and they just will not do it. Like they don't even speak to you. They don't say hello. They don't give you any type of salutation. So what she did, Jane herself, is that when one of the non-white people came up, she would say, oh, hi, how are you? This is where you're going to be going. Thank you. Just go ahead and have a seat and we'll get started in a minute. But then if there was a white person who came up, she would be like, here, you're supposed to go over there, go over there and wait and don't make any noise. Right. And so even from the very beginning, and it's crazy to see like these people's faces, because of course they know what they've signed up for as part of this experiment, this social experiment. Right. Maybe they don't know. I don't think they know exactly because I don't know if they were told who this woman is or what she does. But from the very beginning, it's really interesting to see how they react to being disrespected, right? Just at that very moment where they say hello to her and she doesn't even bother giving them a greeting back. She doesn't acknowledge their greeting. She doesn't say hi back. She doesn't do anything that would be seen as like a pleasantry from the first moment that they see her. So then they all come into the rooms and or into the room together and you know she's told them you know these people are gonna sit over here everyone else is gonna sit over here and then she starts reading down the list of inherent inferiorities of the sub you know quote-unquote um, inferior group so she'll say things like oh well 
all people who come from this racial group are bad and all they do is steal. And then if any of them has a rebuttal is like in this case, if it was like a white person, they have a rebuttal and they put their hand up. She goes, no, why are you always interrupting? Why are your people always trying to talk over me and interrupt? So again, she's, she's projecting the same things that so many non-white groups of people in the Western world and especially in the United States have had to deal with, but onto a group that has never been even spoken to that way never not been acknowledged when they speak, never not been given like formal greetings back, never not been spoken to and like lumped in with all these negative stereotypes about them. Because from their point of view, they're like, well, I'm, I'm politely raising my hand. And, but now Jane's like, well, why are you always so ag- aggressive? Why are you being so disruptive? I'm not even done talking. It. Why are you people always like doing this aggressive thing? And at the end of these exercises, you know, she, and I guess throughout the exercises, she's explaining to people that these are the things that this group has done to other groups as well. And now you're experiencing what it's like to not know why you're being treated this way other than how you look, which again, you have no control over. And it's affecting how you are able to interact or not interact in this setting. And sometimes, especially with, you know, the women, then the white women, they start to cry during the exercise. And sometimes they'll start, you know, talking back and talking over her because, you know, they're upset over how they're being treated. Like like any human being would be upset. And she tells them, yes, this is terrible, but this is exactly what these other people on this other side of the room deal with every single day. And you're in one room for what, an hour and you can't, take it? What do you think it's like for these people who have to deal with this on a daily basis for their whole lives up to now, who've been treated like this since they were children? And I remember I saw that one of the clips I saw when she did this exercise was one of these, um, one of the white women got up and like stormed out of the room and then she was crying and then she finally came back and she tried to make some statement and Jane was like, no, 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 no. Stop crying, first of all. And then she told her, you don't get to just walk out. She said, because when you walk out that door, you're essentially saying, I can't handle this and I'm going to go back into an area where I don't have to deal with this anymore. And she says, these black and brown people don't get to take that off. They can't take off their color. They don't have safe spaces where they can go, where these things are not going to happen to them. So now, not only am I calling you out for like not being able to even deal with the exercise to learn their perspective, but you're being disrespectful because you have just decided that like you don't have to participate, that it's too difficult for you to participate in. And you, by removing yourself, you've made it so that you don't have to deal with that weight. And it's disrespectful to the people who, again, don't get to just leave the room and be treated more fairly. And so, like I said, it's really, really enlightening as a black person. And I think for any other non-white and also for white people who are going to be watching it to see how this social experiment affects people and how just the subtle nuances of how she does or doesn't talk to people, the things she affirms or doesn't affirm about them, the way that even when they're respectfully raising their hands and, you know, 
respectfully addressing her that she just, you know, goes with some random stereotype about that she's made up in that group about those people as a, you know, collective body of people racially or culturally, etc. And the conversations that she facilitates between these people where you have people who are from the other side who are talking about what it's like for them every single day to be disrespected or to not be shown common courtesy from people who feel like they don't have to give them that common courtesy because of their religion or because of their phenotype, because of their race, because of their cultural background, because of their accent, all of these things that shape how we in the United States have ordered caste in the new world, which I've talked about before in the Words Mean Things Diaspora series. Um, I didn't want to call this part five because this isn't I don't think within that framework, but it is related to it as far as like how it has affected the American systems of caste ordering, race ordering, um, how we treat people based on their phenotype and things like that. So the thing that I really do respect about Jane Elliott is that she is a perfect example of what it's like for people to do the work and to practice meaningful solidarity. So what I mean by that is she is not somebody who is a woman of color, of any color. She is a white American woman from, you know, the heartland, I guess. She's from Iowa. She doesn't stand to personally gain anything from the work that she does. She specifically took on starting this experiment with her third grade class because she wanted to drive home just how important the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. was and how important the work and the legacy of the work that he did in his life was, even for them, and how that affected people who didn't look like these students. Because again, she didn't, she wasn't born into a diverse area. She wasn't teaching a diverse body of students. And the work that she's done as an adult educator has done the same thing. It's driven home the points that race and caste and the way we segregate ourselves in society and the way that, you know, society has segregated us has very real effects on our mental health, our physical well-being. She was even saying of her third graders that, She noticed that some of the students had a hard time concentrating, like students who had, in this case, brown eyes, had a hard time concentrating. Like They didn't have any more of the same like confidence in themselves, answering questions in the class, like when she would ask like a math question or a spelling question, like they weren't participating anymore all over one day. And so she talks about as, you know, with her adult groups about how much all of that affects people today. I think she's also been on the Oprah show. So you may be able to look up, you know, Jane Elliott, Oprah (laughs) and see that. But it's really, again, really fascinating to me how whatever talk show, maybe it was Sally Jesse, because obviously this is back in like the golden era of daytime talk shows. But she was on one of these talk shows and she was asking the audience and which was, you know, a mostly white audience, how many of you would change places with black people? She's like, if everything's free and equal and you all claim that, hey, like there is no racism, there is no segregation, or excuse me, not segregation, but there's no more racism, segregation's over, everyone has equal chances, how many of you would change places with a black person? And nobody raised their hand. 
And in that clip, she says exactly, because all of you white people know how our society treats black citizens. And you know you don't want to be treated like that. You know you don't want your children to be treated like that. Then why are you so willing to accept it in society if you know that it's wrong? Because if you really knew that things were free and equal, you'd have no problem just changing places. That would prove your point that you're not going to be treated any different. But the fact that none of you would be willing to change places means that you do know that it's different. And you do know that, you know, you are treated better because of something arbitrary that you can't control. And that you do know that these people are treated worse because of the color of their skin. So that's what I mean by meaningful solidarity is that Jane Elliott has nothing to gain from doing this work. And she still uses her privilege as a white woman, as an American educator, to educate other people from within her community and outside of her community. Because again, like, there's not the world isn't just white and black people. And I've talked before about how anti-blackness is global. So if she was going to do this with a bunch of brown people and, you know, discuss how anti-blackness is happening within other groups of color, quote unquote, it would be the same purpose. She's she's showing how our society treats these people and how we all are participatory and or are forced to live with these sets of rules that we don't have any control over. And when the people who do have control over the rules, who are seen in some way as dominant, when they are talked down to or are put in that subjugated position, that they're not okay with it. And they literally have meltdowns. These are full grown adults who are throwing temper tantrums, crying, you know, like I said, storming out of the room. They may or may not curse her out, you know, the whole nine. And again, this is like an hour. This is maybe 20 minutes in, 10 minutes in, and they're losing their minds. And it really just goes to show you how embedded into our psyches people think that they're supposed to be treated based on where they know they are in that social ladder because they've seen other people who look like them be either treated very well or treated very bad and also considering some of her analysis you know that or some of the analysis of her work is that of course because these things affect people so negatively when they are put in an inferior position through no fault of their own, again, for something stupidly arbitrary, like the color of their skin or the color of their eyes or whether or not they're wearing a religious symbol or whatever like that, it really does drive home how much that affects these people's self-esteem, how it affects who they interact with, how it affects their self-confidence and like the jobs that they do, the work that they're engaged in, their educational processes, how they think of themselves in terms of their place in the world. And I think it's been really interesting in the last few years. I have read that racism, I don't know if it was if it was made formal or if it was just a discussion, but there was some discourse around whether or not someone being racist was going to be listed as a mental illness. And I know like at first people were sort of like, well, what? Like, what do you mean it's a mental illness? But when you think about it at its crux, 
believing that somebody is inferior or inferior based on a set of social rules that is lumped onto those group of people, like that's not based in reality, is something that you've made up in your mind. So it makes sense that it would be considered a mental disease because you've made it up in your mind that these people are like this because of the color of their skin or because they're wearing a hijab or because, you know, they are an immigrant or whatever it is, or because they're short or tall or have certain colored eyes. Like you've bought into their inherent inferiority from you and you are instituting well, you are enacting institutional power over them because we know that racism denotes privilege. People who are not in privileged positions cannot be racist. They can be prejudiced. Like I, as a black person, can be prejudiced against someone who is an immigrant or somebody who um, is taller than me or somebody who is of a different race. But I cannot be racist against them because I cannot stop them from accessing any part of mainstream American life. I can't stop them from getting an apartment collectively, right? Like me as an individual person, maybe, but it's not as if I can stop it so that they won't be able to go anywhere to get those things done, or it may take much longer than it would for the process. I can't stop them from going to school. I can't stop them from, like I said, like finding an apartment or buying a home. I can't stop them from trying to increase their credit score. I have no power over their daily lives in a capitalist American system. So I can be prejudiced against them because I can decide, oh, I just don't like this person for this reason, right? Like based on these traits that I've noticed about them, but I cannot be a racist against them. So it shows you just how much power is in racism and how it affects people on you know all sides of that spectrum because like I said like race is a spectrum the way we've created race in the new world is very much a a spectrum of where you fit in you know in the middle or on the peripheries of white being seen as the the top of the food chain and black being seen as the bottom of the food chain and I think it's so interesting how, like I was talking about on one of the previous podcasts, about how people who were ethnic, right, who were non-white ethnic people or, you know, immigrated from another country and may have had like darker skin, but were not like black people. They were not descendants of slaves. How many of them have bought into the inherent inferiority of black people? Because in their perspective, it elevates their group. And I talked in a previous podcast, I think two weeks ago, about how you had people who immigrated to the country who, you know, they did not come from Europe, but they came from, I think this group or this person came from, somewhere in South Asia. So they were arguing that they were Aryan, right? And that they should be able to have the privileges that were given to white people when it came to how society was segregated. And the court ruled that like you most certainly is not white. Like despite you being from an area of the globe where historically and anthropologically speaking, the the people we know as Aryans came from many centuries ago, because that's not just something that evolved with like the Nazi Third Reich, just so we're clear, I'm not talking about that. But that doesn't mean that you are a white person. And they did the same thing with, especially like Sicilians and Southern Italians, right, who were from Europe, they were from Italy, 
but they were tanner skin, darker skin, had darker features, and they were not considered white. So I forgot the name of the case, but there was even a Supreme Court. I think it was a Supreme Court case. It was either Supreme Court. It was was like a state court case, but there was a couple and one of the guys, I think he was an Afro-Latino and he was living or I don't know, maybe he wasn't Latino, but he was a black man, whether he was Latino or not, he's still black. And he was living with a Sicilian woman and interracial interracial living arrangements were against the law as well as interracial sex, interracial marriage, etc. But once the court found out that this woman was actually Sicilian, they were like, oh, well, she's not white. So you're not technically breaking the law. And then like the court case stopped. So he was found like not being in contempt of the law. But it's things like that, right? Like today, depending on the phenotype, the person, that woman may be considered white. But like I said, and I've talked about in the series, words mean things diaspora, parts one through four, that it really isn't about how you identify. It's how other people identify you. And it's the same thing in this Jane Elliott case where she had these kids who, you know, where she broke them up based on eye color. So even if the brown-eyed kids thought of themselves as smart or thought of themselves as just as capable as the blue-eyed kids, it didn't matter anymore. Because now it's not just the teacher who's, you know, projecting your inferiorities onto you or, and telling you why you're not as good as them or as superior as them. It's your own peer. So it's the people around you, even among maybe other brown eyed kids, but especially blue eyed kids who are telling you, oh, you can't sit with us. You can't play with us. You're not allowed to answer the question. You're not allowed to raise your hand. How come she's being disruptive? It's like, it's coming from all different sides. So once these kids have been identified, in this case, as brown-eyed children, they are no longer going to be treated with the same with, you know, equality or with the same respect. They're not going to have access to the same opportunities. And it's the same thing when it comes to you know, race. So if you're identified as a member of whichever racial group, or maybe it's an ethnic ethnic group in this case you know in america there's like i said one of two you're either hispanic latinx or non-hispanic latinx as far as the census government is concerned but if you are considered latinx if you're being treated differently than if you're non-latinx or you know anything immigration status whatever it is you have no control over that and no matter how you personally identify the people who don't want to treat you equally they're the ones who get to make that decision. And in a system where, in this case, it's going to be people who are just whites who are discriminating against non-whites, they have the power to institutionally keep you out of things, which can affect your money, your meaning like employment opportunities. It can affect your educational opportunities. It can affect your daily safety with people threatening harm against you. Like it's very, very real. And that's why racism is not the same thing as prejudice. And just to sort of like give a story that just happened recently about this, I was having a discussion with my nail tech and she was telling me about how her boyfriend is, he's, I think she said he's biracial. So he has a black Caribbean mother and a white father from the near the northeast so he identifies as a black person right like he says he's a black man okay now she was telling me that one of his friends 
another um another friend had told him that she didn't see him as a black person and she said well no you're not black you're not black and i asked her i said okay well you said his mom is from the caribbean so is she from the english caribbean or like the spanish caribbean like what island is she from and the island that she named was an english caribbean island and i said oh well that's why right in the like I've told you all before in that series, in the English world, in the diaspora, anybody who even if you were mixed in, you're still legally defined as black. And so it would make sense that he has grown up being told and adopting the identity that he is black, right? Because his dad is also from an, a former English colony, the you know the United States. So it's the same thing. Like you're not white, <laughs> and the way race has always been quantified in English, former English colonies, and you know their like modern day counterparts, is that if even if you're mixed in, you're generally regarded as the other. It's only a really new thing for people to identify as mixed, and that's fine, right? Like I think that they should be able to do that. And I can talk about that in another podcast as to why, but. Um, he was offended that this other friend didn't see him as black. And I was telling her, I said, well, you know, it may be because I didn't ask like what this woman's race or ethnicity was, but I was telling her that many, many people see being black as a pejorative, like as a negative thing. So she may not have meant to take away his racial blackness, but she may have meant it as a far as like a form of like, well, I don't see you in a negative way because for so many people, like, being identified as black is a negative. They get treated poorly because of it. People do or don't want to give them respect or advance, um, excuse me, equality in society because of it. Like it has very real ramifications. So for a lot of people, even when they are mixed in, like very visibly with blackness, they don't want to be called black they don't want they don't even have like black friends around them they don't you know perpetuate any black cultural things from no matter what country they're from like the caribbean the mainland americas they they don't have anything to do with blackness at all because they don't want to be called black and they already kind of may look like it but by separating themselves culturally from that they can try to claim that they're not and that's something if you're interested please check out the words mean things series parts one through four because i do talk about that in those cases this is something that's been going on for hundreds of years like since the 1600 no since the 1500s right so it's been going on since the 1500s which is the 16th century but it's really interesting to note and think about how it still happens today and sort of how there's still a lot of that old world sentiment with regarding how people personally identify and how other people identify them and what it means to each person who has a different definition of what these things mean in their lexicon, right? Especially if they're not from that specific group. So I wanted to talk about Jane Elliott today. So thank you for listening to me talk about her. Like I said, she is still alive. She is going to be 90 years old at the end of November. And please definitely check one of her YouTube videos out. I'll link one of them in the description box just so you can have like a point of reference to start. But she really is like a boss. And for me, being someone who teaches... I teach um, at UCSD, I teach, which is the University of California, San Diego. I teach the promises and contradictions of U.S. culture. And so 
as someone who teaches about what the laws have been and the exclusions that were written into laws have been that have kept people from being able to have equal access to the American dream, to be able to see someone put that into real practice is very, very important. I don't know if I would ever be able to like think up how to do that, right? I mean, I certainly, I don't think I would do it at the university. (laughs) I have to like clear it with my director first just to make sure. But the point is, is that um, to see someone do it in real time, it's exactly in line with the things that we teach. And I think what I very much appreciate about what she does is that she's putting it into practice, right? It's one thing to read about it. And I think for the students who take the class, I think a lot of them get, and a lot of them tell me that they get from the class, that it really makes them reconsider things that they see going on present day. Because my job isn't to change anyone's mind. Like, I don't care about changing anyone's mind. Like, that's up to them. My job is to give you the facts about what actually happened, so that you can contextualize why things are the way they are in present day. So when you have primary source evidence, it's really, really difficult to have the same points of view. And it's very important to consider what it was like for others. Because again, especially in this country, we have this idea that like, well, everything's free and clear and things have been like that since, you know, for this amount of time, it's like, no, it really hasn't. And so especially from like, the fourth week through the 10th week, we really focus on the time period that we thought, you know, that they have grown up thinking that things were equal and they're not. And especially for the students who are here as students from other countries, like as an international students, or maybe they, you know, are first, first generation Americans. They're the first ones in their family born here and they've gone through the American school system. You know, a lot of them don't know this really crucial American history. And so it makes them change the way they think about how their families have gotten some advantages in society to the detriment of other groups of people, right? That the reason why people don't have these things isn't just because they didn't work as hard. It's because they were systematically kept from doing it. And so when we think about how that relates to what's going on today with the conversations around, like I know I've talked in the class about how like Chinese Americans, some Chinese, I think the Chinese Americans I don't think they're Chinese nationals, but Chinese Americans are, you know, suing the Ivy League schools because they they feel like they're being discriminated against for their entry to those schools because of that process. Right. Because they don't they don't make up much of any percentage of the student body. Right. So there's like hardly any Asians, statistically speaking, or about how you have people who are advocating against medical racism or having things printed in different languages or the conversation surrounding financial reparations for the descendants of slaves in this country. Like all of these things are very, very relevant when you learn the facts that these people were withheld from having any real part of the American dream through the 1980s legally. Again, not the 1960s, the 1980s, because even after quote unquote segregation ended on paper, a lot of these cities still maintained it through the 80s, housing covenants, like housing developments, all of these institutional things kept people from it based on the way that they look. So 
I know I keep kind of like going back, but you know, the whole stem of this was Jane Elliott. So please check out one of her videos. They're very, very enlightening. It's really interesting, like I said, to see how she engages with these people from the very beginning and sort of how they learn what their place is going to be and how their reaction to that is. Because even some of the people who are generally inferior, it's interesting to see how some of them are uncomfortable now with being in an in, in a superior position. Because again, they're not used to that. And it's it's not like they're, they've ever been given the chance to do the talking or to be treated with respect. So some of them are kind of shy at first, like, oh, I don't really want to talk. Like, again, you know, they're falling into their same script too. They're not crying and throwing the tantrums about it because that's the other side script, but they're still sort of like silently waging, like, how much can I trust this process? Right? Because like, it's never been safe before. So why should I believe that it's safe now? Again, with a woman who is from the dominant society, who is a white woman, like how much can I trust that she's really creating a safe space for me or people who look like me in this moment? So I hope everyone has a great week. The spring semester is starting this week. So there's a lot going on. For those of us who are educators, you know, it was nice having a few weeks off. I guess our next break, next big break is spring break. (laughs) But I will see you on the next episode of Happy Hour History. Thank you so much as always for listening and I'll see you on the next episode. Bye.